you have your Bibles, we'll be uh, concluding John t- chapter 10 this morning. Uh, uh, maybe not a traditional Thanksgiving message, but as certainly as we read John chapter 10, we see something to be thankful for. We see Jesus is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be worshipped. Uh, and in fact, when we know who he is and we make the decision to follow him, the very natural response is for us to worship. So we'll be in John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. And as you're turning, I want you to think about a childhood hero or a modern day hero, someone that we look up to. Uh, I think of many years ago, uh, the pilot, uh, Sully, who landed the plane in the Hudson and everybody said, he's a hero. And he said, no, I'm not a hero. I just did my, that's how you know they're a hero. They don't know they're heroes, right? He was a hero. He saved all those people's lives. As a, as a young child, I remember, uh, I, I remember coming home from school, uh, 91, 1990, 91, 92, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, and I would turn on the TV in the afternoon and I would watch the coverage of the first Gulf War. Uh, I mean, it was one of the, I mean, for me, that was the first thing I remember seeing as far as war on TV, real war. And I remember thinking, look at these American heroes. Uh, in fact, I, got, I became a pen pal with one of them who I think was a cousin, uh, could have been just a neighbor. And when he came home from the Gulf War, I remember meeting him. And I remember thinking as just a young kid, this is a hero. And I cannot remember how he served or what he did, but he served. And he was a hero. Then as a teenager, I remember a man going to our church who would come and talk to our youth group. He was actually a frontline infantry uh, Marine who saw a ton of combat in the first Gulf War. I mean, he was a part of the leading uh, infantry line that went in to uh, liberate the Kuwaiti army. And to hear him talk about his experiences, to hear him uh, talk about how he was welcomed and they were welcomed by the Kuwaiti people because they rescued them. They saved them. They redeemed them from their oppressor. I was like, this guy's a hero, a hero. I think of my dad. My dad's one of my heroes. And throughout life, whether it's a sports figure, a military person, we, are, 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 we have heroes in our lives. Our grandparents, our parents, there are people who rescue us. There are people we look up to. There are people that we respect. There are, and, and And I think as a culture, I think as a world, we long for heroes. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie um, with Matt, it's Pearl Harbor, the big theatrical performance, probably the most recent movie. There's a scene in it right after uh, Pearl Harbor has been bombed and they're on the aircraft carrier to go uh, send the planes to bomb Tokyo. And one of the, the leaders, the commander says, in times like this, People like that show up. In times like that, heroes rise to the occasion. I think we are people today who long for a hero, who long to see someone to come in with boldness and with courage to change things, to rescue, to redeem, to set things right. We're looking for someone to believe in, someone that we can put our hope in for the future. 
When we get to John chapter 10, look at verse 22. It says, then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem. John gives us a context of what's going on. Uh, there's been, uh, so there's been a lapse of time from the end of uh, chapter 10, verse 21 to 22, probably several weeks or several months. The Feast of Booths, which we spent so much time talking about, has now transitioned from spring into winter. Now, if you've been following along, I need to clarify. Uh, I said when we were in the Festival of Booths that that was the last festival that Jesus participated in, uh, and it was. The Feast of Dedication is, is not as major as the Feast of Booths, the Festival of Booths. In fact, Old Testament, you have Pentecost, you have the Passover, you have the Festival of Booths. Those are like the three major festivals that people would pilgrim to Jerusalem. The festival or, or this feast of dedication is very recent in, in our timeline of Jewish history. Uh, in fact, it's not in the Old Testament at all. It is not one of the feasts that is talked about uh, in what we know as the Old Testament, but the feast of dedication came about because of something that happened during what we call the intertestamental period. Uh, there's an event that takes place in that 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it, that is kind of where this feast comes from. You know it today as Hanukkah. Uh, so this is the timeline. This is the Feast of Dedication. is what we have come to call Hanukkah today, and it's still celebrated. But you need to understand the history. And, and, and so I know history is not always our favorite subject, but just bear with me as we, we learn this. Again, this is coming from First and Second Maccabees, uh, two books that are not inspired scripture. Uh, they're not a part of the Bible, but they give us a glimpse into intertestamental history. So around 175 BC, a man by the name of Antichus Ephenius came to rule over the Jewish people. He came to rule over Jerusalem. He came in, he conquered them. His goal was to blend the Jewish customs, the Hebrew customs, with the Greek customs. He wanted to kind of make this, this one, these two cultures become one culture. He thought himself to be God. He thought he was a deity. He thought he should be worshipped. He came in and polluted the temple. He desecrated the altar of God by sacrificing a pig on it. He forced, now if you know anything, Jewish people don't like pigs. It's a very unclean animal. He forced the Jewish priest to eat pork. He forced it down their throats. He turned the chambers of the temple into a brothel. I'm sorry, parents, your kids are going to ask what that means later. So just I apologize. But that, that's what happened. He, he converted him into a brothel. He took the altar of God and turned it into a place where you offered sacrifices to Zeus. He destroyed the Hebrew religion, desecrated their temple. These were dark days for the Jewish people. But then a man by the name of Judas Maccabees shows up. We call him Judas the Hammer. That is like the coolest nickname ever. I want to be Trent the Hammer, right? <laughs> we talked about names last week, but you just call me Trent, the, Pastor Trent the Hammer. This guy, Judas Maccabees, came up. He led a revolt. He was the hero 
for the Jewish people. He led a revolt. He kicked out this, this self-proclaimed deity and he led the people to reconsecrate and rededicate the temple. He was their savior. He restored temple worship. He rescued the Jewish people that were oppressed. That's where the celebration comes from. And now you might be thinking Hanukkah's got the eight candles. You know, that's a really awesome story. When they got into the temple, there was one little jar of consecrated oil left for the lanterns that lights the temple. The oil had to be uh, you know, prayed upon and dedicated. I mean, there was a process to sanctify this oil when they, to be used for the temple uh, chandeliers, the temple candles. There was only a very small amount of this oil left when they got in and reclaimed the temple. It was only enough oil for about an evening worth of light. But it takes eight days to consecrate new oil. That little thing of oil lasted miraculously eight days while they consecrated more oil. So that's where the candle comes with Hanukkah. So you're like, well, I didn't really need to know that. But you do need to know that because we're approaching the Christmas season. And interesting, all this takes place on December the 25th, on what we call December the 25th. The hero of the Jewish people rededicated, consecrated the temple on December the 25th. The hero of the New Testament. We celebrate his birth on December the 25th. Do not over, when John gives us a reference to a feast, there is a connection to what he's saying. And what he's saying is at this point in time, you have, as you're celebrating the hero of this time period, the hero who redeemed you and rescued you, the ultimate redeemer is here in your presence in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem teaching in the temple in the winter during the feast of dedication. And I promise he's teaching about him being the hero. He goes, I am the one true hero. Jesus is the hero that God sent to redeem his people. He's the hero that God sent to rescue his people. He's the hero that God sent to restore the relationship between God and man. But the question, as you continue to read through the end of chapter 10, the question that just pours off these pages, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is that hero? Do you believe that he is the one who's come to redeem and rescue and restore. So look at verse 24. As Jesus is teaching, the Jews surrounded him and asked him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. Now I want you to get the picture. I want you to see it. Jesus is just teaching. He's walking, he's sitting, however he's doing it. He's just teaching. And then Jewish leaders surround him. That word surrounded is only used, I think, three or four times in the whole Bible in the New Testament. And it's used to describe massive armies surrounding their enemies. So these are the enemies, the, the religious leaders who are surrounding Jesus. They're, they're trying to entrap him. They're trying to encompass him. Remember, go all the way back to chapter 5 and all through that. They're trying to kill him. 
And so they surround him. They push out all the people he's teaching to, and they surround him. They get him locked in. They get him in a corner, and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? That is a very nice way to translate that phrase. Another, and I think more direct way that fits the context, the word suspense can also be annoy. They're saying, how much longer will you annoy us? That's what they're asking. How much longer, Jesus, will you annoy us with your teachings? And he says, speak to us plainly if you are the Messiah. And then Jesus continues in verse 5, I did tell you and you don't believe. We have here the reasons people don't believe. I think we see in these religious leaders the primary reason people then and people today don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus will go on to talk about, uh, let's just continue looking at it. He says in verse 25, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. In verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So we do see the reasons for unbelief because Jesus, can you imagine? Think of what Jesus has done in three and a half years. He's coming to the end of his public ministry. I mean, not just in John's gospel, but think about everything we know about all the gospels. He's healing people. He's teaching. He's boldly proclaimed that I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I offer living water. And if you drink of me and you believe in me, it'll never quench your thirst. He's healed the blind man. He's healed the paralytic man. He has told them about as plainly as you can tell them without just coming out and saying, I'm the Messiah. But by the way, he did that to the woman at the well. So it's not like Jesus is being cagey, although there's a little bit of that there. But he is plainly demonstrating to them through his works, he's the hero they've been looking for. And they still don't believe with everything they've seen, with everything they've heard. They're like, stop annoying us. Tell us who you really are. The problem with their belief has nothing to do with the evidence. It has to do with their heart. It has to do with their heart. They don't want to believe this is the Savior. They don't want to believe. They've surrounded him in order to kill him. They're not asking this question to get an honest answer. Because they want, I mean, if Jesus in this situation, if he came out and said, hey guys, I'm the Messiah, they'll kill him on the spot. And you're like, well, they're asking him to be truthful, and Jesus has been truthful. But they don't care. Their belief is because they don't have a heart of belief. Their hearts are hardened to the truth of who Jesus is. And because their hearts are hardened, they're not his sheep. They don't hear his voice. They don't follow his voice. And I think it's the same for us. I think I, I know that I have talked to people throughout my ministry who say, if Jesus would just tell me clearly, I would believe. I say, no, you wouldn't. 
Because you would always be looking for the next sign, the next piece of evidence, that next thing. Their hearts are hardened to the truth of who God is, of who Jesus is. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. They don't want to follow someone who's going to radically transform their life and their worldview. They like the way they are. They like who they are. For these religious leaders, in their mind, they're probably looking for another Judas the hammer. In their mind, they're looking for the guy who's going to come in and lead a revolt against the Romans. But that's not the suffering servant of Isaiah. That's not the Messiah of the Old Testament. Now, he is a conquering king. He is the prince of peace. He's the king of the kingdom. But he didn't come to to do an earthly war to kick out the Romans. He came to wage war against sin and death. He's the hero of sin and death. When he hangs on the cross in just a few short chapters, honestly, just a few short months from when this is taking place, And when he's put in the grave and then three days later when he's resurrected, he will win ultimate victory because he's the redemptive hero. Do you know the religious leaders, even with all the evidence of the resurrection, many of them still don't believe because it's not about evidence. It's about their hearts. As as, as people who are sinful, we have to examine our hearts if we struggle with believing in who Jesus is, we have to look at our hearts. I, I, I know it's hard. And I, I know the you pastors, me, and everybody included, says this is where we get evidence of who Jesus is. These are the eyewitnesses. John's an eyewitnesses. This is how we see the evidence. And I know for many people, this is hard a book to read. It's a hard book to understand. But that is where we pray to have open hearts and softened hearts that God would speak to us through his word so that we would see and believe, which is the theme of John's gospel. The reason we don't believe is because we have hard hearts like these religious leaders. The consequences of unbelief. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. The consequence of belief or the result of believing is eternal life. They will never perish, which means the consequence of not believing is not to have eternal life, is to be condemned, is to spend eternity separated from God the Father, not restored to a right relationship with him. Only those who decide to believe will have eternal life in Jesus. Those who do not believe, they will perish for all eternity. Now, this is just, listen, Christians, listen to me. If you're here and you're sitting here, you're not perfect. I'm going to let that sink in because some of you probably think you're perfect. Okay. I'm the perfect husband most days. Just kidding. That was a joke. She rolled her eyes at me. (laughs) We are not perfect people. And there are days as a Christian, I do things, I say things, and I'm just guilty. I feel like, man, God, why did I do that? Why did I say that? We're not perfect people. And there are people who struggle with their salvation. There are people who really feel guilty and convicted. And I would say that's good because the Spirit's working in your heart, in your life, and helping shape you and sanctify you. 
But listen to this. This is encouragement. No one will snatch them out of my hand. For a Christian who is in the sheepfold, if you're a sheep following the Savior, no one can snatch you away from him. Once you make the decision to believe, once you give your heart to Jesus, nothing will take you out of his hand. We can struggle, and we will. We can do things we know we shouldn't, and we do. But we can never lose salvation when we truly put our heart and give our heart to Jesus. Death will not take us away. They can persecute us. They can kill Christians, and they do around the world. It does not take them out of the Savior's hand. They can close the doors of church buildings, and they do in places around the world. And it will never take the Christian out of the Savior's hand. Once you are in the sheepfold, you're in the sheepfold. Once you're following the shepherd, he's got you. And he will never let you wander or be stole or taken away from him. Because the father has given him his sheep. That is such a beautiful encouragement. And it's because, in verse 30, Jesus and the Father are one. By the way, can you get any more plainly than that to answer the question? Of course, they pick up verse 31. They pick up the rocks to stone him. And then Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you going to stone me for? Jesus asked a very simple question. I've healed this guy. I've healed this guy. I've done this. I've done this. Why are you trying to kill me? I've done nothing but good. And they say, well, we are not stoning you for a good work, but we are stoning you for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. Now look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in the law? And he's going to quote Psalm 82, verse 6, I believe. Psalm 82, verse 6, he says, I said, so this is the quotation, I said you are gods. If he called those, and this is Jesus speaking again in verse 35, if he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one who the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? Now, that's a lot there. That's a ton of stuff. It's really worded, somewhat awkward. Here's what it means. Okay, here's what you need to understand. Jesus, again, this back and forth. By the way, I love this. Jesus is still trying to teach these people who hate him. Jesus is still engaging with this army of people who have surrounded him. Even though he knows they're going to have hard hearts, he's still preaching to them. He says, why are you so mad that I call myself the son of God? It is written in the Old Testament that I said you are gods. Now, that's Psalm 82.6, and here's, here's what some Old Testament stuff is. The judges of Israel, people who God called to kind of rule over the people, in the Old Testament times, they were often referred to as gods, little g, lowercase g, not divine. It was, it was just a word they used to describe the judges of that day. And so Jesus is using this argument saying, listen, 
if you call yourself, because they're supposed to be the leaders of Israel, if you are calling yourself lowercase g gods, and they probably did, that was the word of the day, why are you getting mad at me when I say I am one with God, where I am the son of God? So follow, follow the logic. They supposedly have been called by God to care for the people. So why they don't get upset when they call themselves gods. But Jesus is the hero sent directly from the one true God. He is the only one in this group who has the right and the authority to be called God. Because he is. Why would they get mad at that? Why would they want to stone him for that? In verse 36, I mean, why would they say he's blaspheming that? Verse 37, if I am not doing my father's work, don't believe me. So he's basically saying, look, if you don't think I'm doing my father's work, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. Do you see? He's pleading. Church, I don't want you to miss. He's pleading with these hard-hearted Teachers, he doesn't write them off. He's pleading with them. He's debating with them. He wants them to believe. He says, if you don't believe me, that's fine. Believe the works. Believe the evidence that is clearly put before you. This way, you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then they again were trying to seize him and he eluded their grasp. Church, there are people in this world who will come against the church. They pick up rocks and try to stone us. They criticize us. They hate us. Don't ever stop pleading with them. Don't ever stop trying to lead them to Jesus. And I love how this chapter ends. Verse 40. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. The public ministry of Jesus is ending. 11 and 12 are a transition from public to private ministry. And John ends it at the exact same place he started it, at the Jordan River. Three and a half years, Jesus has been traveling, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been pleading, he's been debating, And here at the end, he goes back to the Jordan, the place where he was baptized, and he remained there. In verse 41, many came to him and said, John the Baptist never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him. Many believed in him. That is the question that we wrestle with Do we believe or don't we believe in the hero of the Bible? Jesus from Genesis to Revelation is the hero of this story. Adam failed to keep God's commandment. Jesus, the new Adam, perfectly kept God's commandments and never sinned because he's the hero that we've been looking for. 
He's the hero that we need to restore us, redeem us, and rescue us. He's the hammer that can put a nail through sin. And as they hammer the nails into his hands and feet, that's exactly what's happening. The question is, do you believe? Will you open your heart to believe in Jesus, the one true hero? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the hero of this story. As a humanity, as as humans, we constantly fail. We are sinful. We disobey you. We rebel against you. We try to run as far away from you as we can. But you are there to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us to a right relationship with you. Father, help us to believe. Help us to believe that you are who you say you are. Help us to believe in you and make you the Lord of our life. Help us to follow you. Father, help us to come to you, the one true gate, the only way to heaven. And Father, as a church, help us never to turn our backs on people who hate us, people who don't believe. Help us to pray, help us to teach, and help us to engage the culture that you have put us in so that others would come to worship you and so that many would believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.